following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Okay, let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Um, Matthew 7 is where we're going to be today. So the last four weeks we've been looking at, at relationships, and we've done it because we, we live in a, in a crazy, conflicted world, right? You can't, like we talked about before, you can't walk outside these doors and not immediately feel division, conflict, separation. It's everywhere. And the question I've been asking myself is, how do I as a Christian man live in a world that is in conflict all the time? How do I serve people when all they know is conflict, and then better yet, how can I lead then a congregation to be a congregation of people that would have peaceful, unified relationships that God has wanted us to live in? And, and what we're trying to do is just be faithful. Now, let me give you a, a brief example that might uh, help you see why we're doing this. Um, you know, several years ago, well, you know, when I was a young sprout, actually, several years ago, by the way, um, and uh, started in the game of baseball, I can remember my dad, my dad was a baseball nut. And I remember my dad vividly saying to me, uh, you want to know why most teams fail? And I said, no, why? And he'd say, because they don't ever teach the fundamentals. And my dad would grind me. I mean, I would go out every Sunday afternoon for three hours. My dad would, he'd hit me fly balls. And we kept, I'd hit fly balls, had throw balls in. He had buckets set up that I had to throw balls to the bucket. Um, he made sure my footwork was right, my hands were right, all the different things that went on with the fundamentals. Uh, if I had, a ha- I had a rough day at the plate, I'd have to go home and take another 250 hacks at my pitching machine because my dad wanted my fundamentals done right. Now that I coach baseball, I've been doing it for 25 years, if you were to come to one of my practices, you're going to find a session in our, in our practice schedule that's called the fundamental session. And every day we're working on glove work, we work on how to throw, we work on all the fundamentals of the game, because it's my opinion, that was my dad's, that, that fundamentally sound teams that work hard will beat talented teams who are not fundamentally sound every day, every day of the week. And we have just tried to teach fundamentals. The series we're in right now is fundamentally Christian. It's what it means to operate in the most basic levels as a Christian when God takes over your soul, and what are the fundamentals of things that we need to have in place over and over again, and we make sure that we know them. So in the last several years of our church, and those of you who have been here for a while know this to be true, especially the last two years, we have grown immensely to the degree that we're having to look for building expansion and all those kind of things. But one of the things that we believe as a leadership of the church is absolutely fundamental is how we handle relationships inside the church. It is absolutely critical because it's critical to God and it's critical to his word. It's critical to Jesus. It's in Jesus's prayer, which we're going to talk about in two weeks, and it should be critical to us. So when we're going over these issues, we're going over the fundamentals, right? That's what we're doing. We're in a sense having a fundamental session for the next, you know, we've been doing this since the beginning of the year. We're going to finish it here in three weeks. So that's why we're doing this. All right. So just as a reminder, if you haven't been with us, here's what we've covered so far. We've talked about how God created uh, created us to live in harmonious, unified, loving relationships that mirror the Godhead, that mirror how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit relate to one another. But our sin in Genesis chapter 3 got in the way, and we saw that sin always moves us away from one another and creates separation. And we saw that in the life of Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve as well. Our normal sinful response to one another is to look out for ourselves 
and be uncaring toward one another. But when Christ came, he came to not only save us from our sin and the wrath of God, he came to reconcile us to God, and he actually gave us a ministry of reconciliation. In this ministry, in this life, as Christians, we are literally representing God in this world as ambassadors of Christ, and Jesus restores us to being our brother's keeper. He restores us to what God originally intended for us in relationship. So imagine this, when you walk out the door, you are representing Jesus as a human that has been restored to live like God wanted you to live when he first created you. You're way different than everybody else out there who doesn't claim Christ. And then as we learned last week, that as Christ forgave us, we are to forgive others. Forgiveness is a promise that says to others that we're not going to hold their sin against us, against them, or against others, or to, or to ourselves. We're not going to bring it up to them, to ourselves, or to others as a form of accusation or a form of revenge. We're to forgive others from our hearts, and when they ask us to forgive them, we graciously give them forgiveness because we've already worked it out in our hearts. Now, perhaps one of the more challenging aspects of being a Christian is the fact that Jesus said, we are, we've been forgiven much, therefore we're commanded to forgive, right? This isn't a suggestion from the risen Christ. This is literally, as God has forgiven you in Christ, you are to forgive other people by the power of Christ at work in you. Now, now this Sunday and next week, we're going to get very, very practical. <clears throat> we're going to talk about very basic, fundamental things that should go on simplistically in the life of the church and in our lives regularly. And one question that has come up in this series has been, is this series about relationships with non-Christians or with Christians? You know, people have asked me that. You know, are you talking about how I relate with Christians or non-Christians? And my response to that question is both, but it depends. So let me give you an example. On one hand, as Christians, we must do everything we can to be at peace with non-Christians. If I sin against my non-Christian friends, I should go to them and ask them to forgive me and try to be reconciled. If things feel weird between me and them, I want to go to them and try to be reconciled to them, make sure there's no weirdness between them. And most certainly I should do things the same thing with Christian people. However, in another sense, these principles are distinctly for Christians and how we interact in the church and how we interact with other Christians in this world. I mean, we cannot expect a non-Christian to see their sin against us and come to us and say, hey, I need to ask you to forgive me because God said I need to forgive you. They're not a Christian. They don't have the Spirit of God at work in them. So one of the conversations I have with Christians often is, I'm mad because this non-Christian won't come to me and tell me what they did wrong. And my response is, they won't. They don't have the Spirit of God at work in them to do that. They don't even have that category in their life. And so we can't expect them to do this, nor can we expect them to forgive us when we go to them to ask them to forgive us. More than likely, you're going to be told, look, you did this and I'm not going to be a friend with you anymore. We're done. That's probably what you're going to get. So, but for Christians, these principles are to be the norm. I should expect a Christian brother, if he sins against me, I should expect him to come to me and ask me and ask me to forgive him. I should expect a Christian brother, when I go to him, when I ask him to forgive me, to then repeat, to say to me, man, absolutely, I forgive you. Those should be the normal things that go on in our lives as Christians. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about maintaining relationships in the church, really, when things go bad. Right? So, I mean, let's just think about this for right now. And we've been, God has been kind at CLF, I mean, over our years. We've, God has been really gracious to us. We have a peaceful, 
happy, motivated, excited group of people that come to church here. But we've, you've heard me say it before. Sin is always waiting at the door to destroy what we're doing. Number one, because I walked in the door, right? You walked in the door. We're always one Sunday away from a church split. So what happens when someone sins against us? What happens when somebody gets elevated to a position that we thought we should have had because of our history here, our time here, or haven't you seen what I do? Don't you know my gifts? How do we solve interpersonal problems in a manner that honors Jesus so that the church, our church in particular, would represent Jesus to a world that needs Jesus? Right? What, how do we do that? And so this week we're going to look at how we maintain them. Next week we're going to look at how do we protect them. So this week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. So stand with me as we read God's word together. Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5 is what we're going to read. And this is the reading of God's word. That's why we stand. We honor God because he has given us his verbally inspired truth. <clears throat> Matthew 7. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, if you're new with us, you should have got an outline, and there's an outline on the top that has a big idea. I'm going to change some wording on that in the new in the slide that's going to come up with you. It's not much, but you'll notice a little bit here. So here's the here's the big idea we want to get across this morning. Jesus has provided ways to maintain redemptive relationships by his power, which is at work within us. I want to say that again. Jesus has provided ways to maintain redemptive relationships by his power, which is at work within us. And I want you to notice the emphasis here. The emphasis is on a plan that Jesus give, has given us, but the, the impetus, the, the important piece is it's by and with the Spirit's power, by God's power at work within us. See, here, here's what we have a tendency to do on the things we're going to talk about this morning. It's a fair warning before we get into prayer. We have a tendency to immediately say, they don't know my situation. I don't know if I can do that. I can't do those things. And my response as it was last week about forgiveness is as a Christian, when God gives us a command, we should never say I can't because by the power of God, God would not give us a plan without the power to go do it. So when we say I can't, what we're really saying is I won't. So we need to posture ourselves appropriately that when we see the principles and the practical plan that Jesus lays out for us, This is not something where Jesus says, look, I know this is really hard and I feel bad for you guys. I'm leaving you all alone. You know, good grief. I hope you can get it done. No, Jesus is saying, this is the expectation because of the power that I've given you to go do these things. And so we've got to connect the power of Jesus to the plan of Jesus. But there's another reason I want you to notice this. So many of us say, well, listen, dude, you're, you're confrontational, man. You love confrontation. And people who know me well know I do not, I hate confrontation. I hate it. I don't like it. I don't like needing to go confess my sin to people. Right? I know it's necessary. And we will excuse things and say, well, you're up front. You're type A. You're a strong personality. For us people that are shy, we really don't have that ability. And my response to that is, 
then why would Jesus not say, for all type A personalities? (laughs) He didn't say that. This is for all of us. And all of us need the power of Christ to do this. And I want to be very sensitive to the fact that Jesus is here. He's here to help. So as we're going through this together today, let's just posture ourselves appropriately before God to say, God, we, we need your help in this. We need you. And hear him say back to you, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He's right with you. So let's pray together. Father, we really need your help today. I think all of us, even before I even start, we can probably think of situations that we need to deal with. So I pray that you'd help us this morning. Would you reveal to us the power that's given to us in Christ? And connect it to the plan that you've given us. And may we see people and relationships be reconciled in ways that we never dreamed before. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's look at our first point there, which is take out the old growth timber. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to use three different passages of Scripture. This is the first one, Matthew 7. And it's a good place to start because Jesus points us inward. So Jesus, in, in the first thing Jesus is going to talk about is when you're dealing with relationships, the first thing we got to do is look inward. We've got we to look at ourselves first. Now in this sermon, it's right at the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is cautioning us against making self-righteous, critical judgments of other people. He's cautioning us about having a critical spirit. And you'll notice that he tells us, before you ever do that, take a good long look at yourself. Right? Notice yourself first. And, and I think the reason why he's doing this is it's easier for us to see other people's sin before seeing our own. We're naturally blinded by our own sin, especially if they've hurt us or there's a conflict. We would say things like, if they would only, or if they would stop doing this, or if you hadn't have done this, rather than first looking inward. Now, John Stott, I think, says this the best when he wrote it in his typical British way, and hear a British accent behind this, we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the gravity of our own. See, we all know people like this. Nothing seems to make them happier than to see the faults in other people. They're always looking to throw shade or an accusation on someone. Nobody ever seems good enough for them or is able to please them. They're constantly analyzing why people do what they do and looking for ways to question their motives. But to take Jesus' verses to us, we have to ask this question, do you see any of those things in yourself? Do you see this critical spirit rising up in you? Parents, this is a remarkable challenge for us. I mean, we've, we've raised these children from the womb, right? I mean, we've taught them how to act in public, and yet you watch them and you go, I... How, how, I thought we taught you how to act in public and we, we teach them how to not spit their food out the table and yet they spit their food out the table. We teach them to eat what's in front of them and yet they don't do that and they embarrass in front of the cook who made the food for them. You go, and all of a sudden you're thinking, this is not the way I've raised you. You don't have to teach your child to rebel or lie. They do it very naturally. Is there amen to that, parents? Anybody here? Maybe you, you know. Okay, great. And it's easy as a parent to only see the bad and develop a critical spirit. It's easy in marriage. I mean, inside of marriage, what do you see? You see 
You see all the, all the weaknesses, the sins, the idiosyncrasies of your spouse that nobody else sees. And sometimes we're hurt by those things. And it's easy in marriage to begin our, get our eyeballs focused solely on the critical things that our spouse needs to do better, could have done better, didn't do all the things that hurt us. It's easy to do it at work or at school where we want certain things and we look for weaknesses and cracks or faults and others to bring them down so we can beat them in a bid, a project or a promotion or a job on the playing field. We can develop a critical spirit. And listen, it's easy to do it in the church when people sin against us or when we look at the outside world and we see sin everywhere. I mean, from the confusion and sexual ethics to the chaos in the halls of Congress to the gossip and infighting in the church, it's easy to have a sinful, critical spirit. And Jesus in Matthew 7 goes right after that, doesn't he? He tells us to take a long look at ourselves first because we're naturally self-focused and naturally proud. And he told us to look at ourselves first because there's a reason behind it. In Christ, you have something unique that nobody else who doesn't know Christ, they don't have. You have your eyes opened to the reality of your sin. See, in Christ, we begin to see the reality that we are sinners just like everybody else around us and even those who've hurt us. And it frees us from acting like the victim or acting like we've always been wronged and it allows us to start looking inward to actually ponder, I might be doing, I might be the one doing the wronging. I might be the sinner in the room. Not everybody else around me has the issue. And that's why Jesus said to first take the log or the plank sticking out of your own eye. Now to use Northwest terms, some of you giggle already, it's take out the old growth timber. We all know what that is. I had no idea what old growth timber was until I moved to Roseburg, Oregon, right? I mean, we didn't have old growth timber in Dallas, Texas. We had fake bushes, right? I mean, <clears throat> that were lit on fire by the sun that beat them down and you could literally fry an egg on the concrete, right? Not here. Everybody knows what old growth timber is, right? And, and just think what Jesus is saying. See your sin first and see it for what it is. It is a huge issue. And notice the metaphor. The metaphor is fascinating. Take out the old growth timber in your eye before you try to take out a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. See your sin correctly. Your your sin against God is a bigger issue than the sawdust speck in your brother's eye. That's what he's getting at here. And he's also getting at, don't be a hypocrite who calls others to an account while you yourselves are walking around with a telephone pole sticking out of your eye. And you can see the irony in the story. Why and how could we ever see a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye when we've got a tree sticking out of our own eye? How does that happen? Right? I mean, you can't put your eye, your head of it. You can't even see clearly to see a speck of dust in their eye. You cannot deal with with that unless you deal with your own sin first. And this is where we have to start in maintaining relationships in the church. If something's gone wrong, we've got to start first with seeing ourselves in the light of Jesus. We've got to start first by seeing ourselves in the light of the cross of Christ to see that our sin is what placed Jesus on the cross. 
The only contribution that you and I have made to salvation is a sin for which Jesus died for. I mean, let that do some work in the soul. It wasn't that you walked up and were such a good guy and Jesus said, yeah, I want that one, that's why I'm dying. No, he said, this one's so awful and sinful, I'm going after them. They're ugly and nasty and I'm still going after them. The only contribution we've made to the salvation that we, by grace, have been given is the sin for which Jesus died for. So when we see the seriousness of our sin at the foot of the cross, here's what it does. It allows us to see the seriousness of our sin at the foot of relational conflicts. And so to work on these relationships, we start with a biblical assumption. More than likely, we have contributed to the relational breakdown through some sin of our own. We have to start with us. What's our contribution to this issue? What part did we play? What sin did we commit? How did I hurt this individual? What is the old growth timber in my life? Now there's exceptions to this, but we need to start here in most Situations. We've got to see ourselves correctly at the foot of Jesus and believe that there's some old growth timber sticking out of our eyes. And we've got to remove it first. Now you know this. Maybe this week you had a, a conflict with your spouse. <clears throat> and the words out of your mouth or your mind were, if she would stop, if she'd just get it, we wouldn't have this fight. And the wife's going, if he'd stop being a jerk, I think we could actually have a conversation. And you can see the direction of what we're doing. we got beams sticking out of our eye, and we're pointing out the speck in the other eye, and we've got to first remove the old growth timber out of our eyes. That's how you have to start. We've got to start there. Our posture before the Lord, our, our understanding of our own sin at the foot of the cross helps us understand our sin at the foot of relational conflicts. The second thing you're going to notice is the point is meet in the middle. See, after we've done a good spirit-led clear cut, then to maintain relationships, it's time to go to other people. That's where we want to meet in the middle. Now remember the direction of Jesus. His direction was always to go. Sin always separates, wants to keep us apart. So you know that fear you have, like, I don't know if I should go to this individual, and you start making up all the scenarios of why? That's sin at work in you to keep you separated. You know the fear that you have of saying, well, maybe they won't like me or they're going to disrespect me if I confess something to them. That's sin, doing everything it can to keep you separated. But Christ came to us, therefore we go to others. And we see this in two passages in the book of Matthew. The first one we need to turn to is Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. This is one of the best texts in Scripture on what to do When we believe we've hurt somebody. What do you do when you you know you've hurt somebody? What what happens here? So let's see. So Jesus says it clearly. If you're out your if you're offering a gift at the altar, now the idea here is you're at church, you're worshiping, getting ready to go to the Lord's Supper table, you're praying, you're reading your Bible, you're journaling, and something comes to mind, and you remember that your brother or sister, to make it gender inclusive, has something against you. Now let's just stop there. We all know that moment. You're in church, probably happening right now to some of you. Probably name off one people, if not seven. And you've got some issue that's going off. You're in prayer. You're thinking about things. And suddenly you remember 
the weird look, the awkward conversation with this friend, the strange interaction with them that they used to be friendly, but now they're treating you poorly. You remember maybe saying something in a meeting that was disrespectful to them or hurtful to them. That's what Jesus taught. It's a, it just comes up on you right now, just suddenly. Lands in your lap. And notice it doesn't have to be sin. He says they, you remember there's something against you. Meaning they could it could be sin. There's just some weird thing going on just separating you. What does Jesus say? Leave the altar and first go to be reconciled with your brother. Then come and make your offering. Now I find this fascinating. What Jesus is saying is doing something spiritual. Worshiping God, being at church, doing communion, praying, reading your Bible. You name those things is not as important as being reconciled with your brother. Showing us the priority that Jesus puts on reconciliation with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is important to Jesus that we're reconciled because our unity in in Christ shows the world a power in Christ that the world has no category for. Matter of fact, you're going to read in John 17, we'll study in two weeks, that Jesus actually said these words, that when we walk together in unity and in love and in oneness, like God the Father are in oneness, it reveals to the world that God sent Jesus. If you want to know a huge display of the gospel, it's churches and Christians walking together in harmony, even though there's sin between them and they learn how to reconcile it. It's that important to Jesus. It's it's a gospel issue to Jesus. So the question is, okay, how do I do this? I mean, give me some practical guidance on how do I reconcile with others who have something against me? I realize it. I know I've sinned against them. What do I need to do? Well, the first thing you need to do is go. You go to them. And you acknowledge to them what the Lord has brought to your mind. So it could be something like this. You know, the other day I was at church. And I realized when I was at church, the Lord showed me that I sinned against you in a meeting that we were in and I was disrespectful to you. And here's how I did it. Would you please forgive me? It's as simple as that. I'm acknowledging to them what I did. Now, Lord willing, the hope would be they would then reciprocate. You know what? You're forgiven, man. I, I Absolutely. I've already forgiven you. We're good. Right? Or it could be something else. You could say, you know what? Things seem a little strained and weird between us right now. I don't know... If maybe I've hurt you in some way, have I? It's one of the things I love about my relationship with our elder board. There's not a 24-hour period in our elder board from an elder meeting to the time after that those guys don't want to stay. They stay current all the time. We can have a meeting. The next day I'll get two texts. Hey, can you get a chance to talk? I want to talk about something I said last night in the meeting. I just want to make sure it's clear. They want to keep current all the time. And so I go to this individual. I sit down and say, Is it something maybe weird? Does it feel weird to you? And then I listen, listen clearly, with an expectation that I have hurt them. Why? What does my sin tell me? My sin, the gospel says to me, you probably have sinned against them. So I go to them and say, have I sinned against you, hurt you, done something? And they say, yeah, here it is. I say, you know what, I want to deal with that. And I confess and agree with them what the issue is between us. And I say to them, would you please forgive me? And then I ask them to forgive me. And then hopefully it's reciprocated. But here's the point. I go with humility 
with a desire to reconcile, not to accuse or justify. And I go in order to honestly deal with my sin that has created the problem between us. Now, see, don't, don't say things like after they, you know, say, have I offended you? So, yeah, absolutely you have. They get done and you go, is that it? Dude, suck it up, man. What's wrong with you? Sissy, figure it out. Don't do that, right? Don't, don't say, really? Well, that's kind of that's dumb. I mean, really? I mean, no, we don't. We go with this to hear their concerns and receive it, looking to our hearts first. So if you've sinned against it, the Lord brings it up. You go, go with humility, with an expectation that you have, and be willing to reconcile. Then what do you do if, if, if somebody sinned against you? Let's go to Matthew 18. What do you do if somebody sinned against you or hurt you? Well, Matthew 18 is <clears throat> probably the, the best text, and I think probably the clearest text. If your brother sins against you, notice what Jesus says, go Tell him his fault in private between you. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. <clears throat> if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Again, notice the direction. Go. Go to them. What's the sinful tendency? Go away from them. But Jesus said, go to them privately and tell them what they've done to you. This is not a church lobby conversation, right? Or a community group conversation where, you know, you're in the middle of a meeting and you go, hey, Matthew 18 says I got to bring up your sin to you. So I'm going to do that right now. And, you know, 30 people are watching into this situation. That's not what's going on here. This is a private conversation, one-on-one. And notice something else. It's not guesswork. It's not a matter of personal preference, you know. Listen, man, I want to talk to you because, you know, you like Van Halen, I love Journey, and we got an issue. We talk this thing out, right? It's not, a, it's not a judgment of motives. Listen, let's get this squared away. There's only one judge of motives, one who knows the motives purely and perfectly in the universe, and it's God. It's not you. You and I don't have that ability. We think we do because we think we're some kind of secret service agents all the time, but we're not. We don't know that, right? We go because it's a clear sin that can be found in the Bible, And it's based on evidence that you saw them do this or you heard them do this. Not based on how you felt or your assumptions. Right? So you can go to somebody and say, hey, listen, the other day you were talking to me and I really felt like you didn't like me and I felt like you said this and I felt like you were saying that. And the response of the person should say back to you, did I say that? Well, no. Okay, well, well, I don't want to deal with your feelings right now. I want to deal with what happened. What was the sin? What went down? What did I do? What did I say? See, so when you go to confront this individual, it's about clearly what the scripture says about the sin. You know it's a sin. You've seen the sin. They've done it to you. They've spoken it to you. And you go without any sense of self-righteous judgment on them. You know why? You've already taken the log out of your eye, right? So you've already done the work internally. Knowing that your sin is just as bad as their sin. Their sin put Jesus on the cross just like your sin did. And your sin hurt others just like their sin hurt you. And you go as a humble learner, not as an accuser. So here's some examples of that. You might say, hey, the other day, you and I were in a meeting the other day, and it was just you and I with a few other guys, and I really, I really thought you gossiped about so-and-so. Did I misread that? And you give them a chance to respond. Or you say, 
I've noticed at times that you interpret, you, you interrupt others quite a bit. And it comes across as disrespectful. Has anybody else ever brought that up to you? Do you, do you see that in your own life? A situation that happened to me years ago, we were in a meeting and it was just this interruption piece. My wife and I were in a care group meeting and one of the brothers called me after the meeting and said, hey, I just want you to know, would you check with Jilly and find out, did, does she think you interrupted her a lot tonight? Because I thought you did. And it came across as disrespectful. I was like, yeah, do whatever, you know, hang up the phone. Hey, this guy said I interrupted you quite a bit. She goes, oh my word, I'm really glad somebody called you on it. It's like pretty disrespectful and just like, can I, am I going to get a word in edgewise? I mean, Dave keeps finishing my stories, you know? And I was like, I am so sorry. So I called the guy back, said, thank you. Talked to our guys, asked them to forgive me about it. Cause I, but I wanted them to open up the door, confront me anytime you see this. See, but they brought it to me with this. Is that, what do you think? Not an accusation. Like you always do this. So that's the way you are. You No, it's none of that. See, And if that person then sees their sin, they confess it as sin, they ask you to forgive them, then you verbally give them, you grant them forgiveness. That's what Jesus meant by if they listen to you. If they hear you, know where you're coming from, see it as sin, confess it as sin, you've won your brother. And let me say something, that's the goal. So many people get this wrong. We go, I'm going to confront and get this monkey off my back. No, then don't confront. You are taking this issue to them because you've looked internally in your own heart and you want restoration with this brother or sister. If restoration is not the goal, then don't do this. Winning our brothers and sisters back is the goal of all of this. We want people restored to God and to one another because it glorifies God. Now you might say, okay, well, what do I do with a guy? Then I've confronted him, but he doesn't change. He's not, he's not confessing it as sin. It's clear sin. Then what do you do? Well, the rest of Matthew 18 from verse 16 to verse 20 is all about a process called church discipline. We in our church call it church restoration because that's what it's about. If somebody refuses to listen, there's a process Jesus gives us. And the goal is always that this person would see the seriousness of their sin and repent, especially if it's harming them, harming others, and it's defiling the name of Jesus. It has to be addressed, but it has to be addressed with what? restoration as the goal. If it's not the goal, we should never be doing this kind of stuff. So if a brother sins against us, the risen Christ tells us to go to them in humility and in love, tell them their fault to them alone for the purpose of restoration. Now what you'll notice about Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, which I think matters immensely to this discussion, is there doesn't seem much in those passages on time delay. Notice Jesus says in Matthew 5, if you're there and you realize you've done something against somebody, you get up and go. Matthew 18, if somebody sins against you, you go. Meaning, if I think my brother has something against me, I get up and I move. If I think they sinned against me, I get up and I move. And I go. We have believed a lie in the church that says this. Time heals all wounds and we need space. That's our big word today. We need space to let this thing heal up a little bit. Now what space does for you, it just covers over an infestation of cancer in your soul. And at one point it's going to come up again and you're never going to remember the facts of the original problem. Then you can't ever really solve it. There's no issue of time delay. Jesus' forgiveness and transformation of our souls is what heals our wounds and has provided a way that we can help heal relational wounds 
through spirit-led and spirit-empowered reconciliation. So keep that in mind. So listen, as, as, as in order to maintain these relationships, you're going to notice something through this. You've got to stay current with people. Husbands and wives, if you want to you have a, a tip to keep your marriage just flowing and humming like anything you could ever imagine, don't ever let one day go by that you don't solve the issue of that day. Don't ever let there be a conflict between you that you're not trying to work on that day. Do not let the sun ever go down on your wrath or your anger. And if it does, you set a time the next day to get together to solve that issue. And if you can't solve that issue, you're calling another brother or sister and that you respect to help you solve that issue. And you stay with that one issue. Because what many marriages do is they sweep it under the rug. Sweep it under the rug. And then they come to our offices and they say, we've got an elephant in the room. And I go, yeah, it's all the things you've been sweeping under the rug. And the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. You should have ate that elephant when it was a little baby. Okay? Stay current. Stay current with this, right? And, and listen, you, what ends up happening is, is you deal with stuff as it comes, it doesn't mound. and become more issues. But listen, we've got to go. If you've been sinned against... You go. If you, if somebody's, if so, if you send against somebody else, you go. And guess where you meet people who really want reconciliation? You meet them in the middle. Right? I can't tell you the amount of times of Christian brothers where I've gone to say to them, knowing I've sinned against them, I've gone to say, I need to talk to you about something. And they go, yeah, I was going to bring something up to you, man. And we bring up the same issue. And I go, I, I need you to forgive me. I, I blew it. Yeah, I know you did, man. And I forgive you. I love you. Can we move on? Absolutely. Let's go. And we get up and we move on. It takes us about three minutes and we're done. Right? So meet in the middle. Right? Meet in the middle. And you go knowing this. The risen Christ is here to care for you. He would not give you this plan without giving you power. Okay? Four questions to end our day that I want you to run through with me. I know this is going a little long, but just hang with me a little bit. Okay? Questions I get about this kind of stuff often. If love covers a multitude of sins, why then should I go to people? Right? People say this all the time. Oh, just let love cover it. And what their attitude is, they think that First Peter, who says this clearly, love covers a multitude of sins, they think it means to ignore people's sins and just move on. And on one level, I would say, that's eh, probably true a little bit. <clears throat> but I do agree with Jay Adams on this. And here's what he said. Love does cover a multitude of sins unless sin kicks the covers off. There are just some things that you can't ignore and things you should not ignore. So I tell parents often, you know that little sin your little Johnny's doing at three years old? Looks cute and everybody's laughing about it, the whole thing. Imagine Johnny doing that at 17. Not so cute. It's the same thing here. There's some things we can't ignore. The basic idea is we go to others when we can't ignore the issue or if we can't get over it. There are some things we should never get over and need to be dealt with with confession and repentance. Furthermore, if we sin against someone and we know it, we should always go. Right? You know it. You go to them because you never know the impact that your sin has had on them. So we go when we can't ignore it or we can't get over it and we go as an act of love. It's, it's, it's an act of love to go. See, the end of James says this really clearly. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you is wanders from the truth, and he's talking to Christian people, 
And someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When we go to a brother and turn him from his wandering, that is a loving thing to do. Because it's covering or stopping a multitude of sins. Confronting sin, confessing sin to one another is an act of love if done for God's glory and the other person's best interest. It's true, love does cover a multitude of sins, but it's a loving thing to bring up sin we just cannot ignore. Second question, how should we go to people? What kind of posture, right? We should go knowing that we've contributed to this thing. We've already talked about this. We should go expecting we've got the issue, but we also go for the, person, the other person's good. See, if they've sinned against us, we go to them to confront that sin looking to forgive and restore, not to get something off our back. If, you, if you're going to somebody to confront their sin because you just got to get something off your back, <clears throat> don't go. If you've not worked out forgiveness in your heart, don't go yet. If you don't have compassion for them, don't go yet. And if you going to them is not for their best interest, don't go yet. We should go for their good. But if, if, if we've sinned against someone, we need to ask if our confession to them is good for them. Let me, let me give you an example of this. Let's say that you're harboring bitterness towards somebody. It's internal. You know what? This person thinks you guys have a great relationship. Or they had no idea there was an issue. Should you go to them and tell them that you're, you've been harboring bitterness toward them? My response is, well, it depends on the relationship. Depends on the question. You know them well enough to know. If you told them that, how would it affect them? Would it be good for them? Would it benefit them? Would it serve them? How will that information be good for you and for them? What would it be for their best? If it's not, then you work that internal issue out before the Lord. But if your bitterness caused you to act out sinfully toward them, you said things, you treated them badly, whatever it may be, then you confess what you did to them, not just what you're doing Internally. So examples of this. Would it ever be appropriate to tell someone that you're struggling with impure, lustful thoughts for them? No. Would it ever be, would it ever be appropriate for you to, to tell somebody, you know, I lay in bed at night and I think of ways just to murder you. I just want to confess that. It's sin. It's sin. It's bad. I know it's bad. I never should do this. You know, I think of ways to pin you to the wall and hurt you. I mean, the, no, it wouldn't be for their benefit. You see the exaggerated point. Internal sin you deal with before God. Things you do or say you deal with the individual that you sinned against. Now certainly if that individual sees or feels or understands that there's something between you, you got to deal with this. If your sin led you to do something, you need to confess to them what you did and ask them to forgive you. But only confess the things that you did to them for their good, right? And make sure it is for their good. And let me add one last thing about this part, this one question. For those of you in this younger millennial world that does everything online, okay? There's a thing, I know it's shocking, it's called a face, right? Physical, you can touch it, you can sit with it, right? It is best to have these kind of conversations face to face. Now that was, I heard old people say amen. Young people, you should be going, amen to this, right? <clears throat> Make every effort about this stuff to talk face-to-face. You can deal with smaller things via text, email, whatever, 
But there are some relationships that are impossible to meet with face-to-face, like distance or legal issues. you got to do it in written form. But do not ever confront people in writing. Don't confront them in writing. When we do stuff in writing, we say things we never say to people's face. I call it computer screen courage. There's a lot of Facebook, social media giants out there that are just dudes, right? And then you get them face-to-face and they're pansies. I mean, just be straight about it. They would never say that same stuff to your face, right? So, and furthermore, people say, I can be really be honest in a written text. My response to that is, that does not benefit the individual, nor does it promote long-term health in the relationship, which is what you should be after. I want, when I see somebody face-to-face, we're at peace with one another. When I look them in the eye, we're at peace with one another. I don't want separation in relationships. Furthermore, when we confront in writing, we're not looking for a reply. We don't want them to reply back. We just want to explain our position, get the monkey off our back. We're not really interested in peace or reconciliation. Writing leaves too much room for conjecture and misunderstanding. You can't read voice inflection, facial expressions, or even intent in an email, a Facebook post, or a text. You just can't. That's why I say get eyeball to eyeball. Look each other in the face. Going face to face shows the seriousness of the issue and the care that you have for the other person. It says to them, I love you enough that I want to talk to you face to face about this because I care about you. And I'm going to confess my sin to you because I love you enough. I don't want everyone to be anything between us. It says something about the value. Third question. Does confession mean automatic restoration? And the answer shortly is no. It doesn't. Restoration is a process. The process goes clearly like this. Someone sins. There's confrontation of sin. There's confession of sin. There's forgiveness granted in sin. There's repentance and there's forgiveness lived out. And then there's restoration. As much as possible and when appropriate. But there are some cautions. If you sin against someone... And listen, depending on the nature of the sin and how close your relationship was with, is, is with them, you must let the, the other person determine the timing and the pace of the restoration. They've got to be the one to determine that. You've done the sinning, so you need to be the patient one waiting. Just because you confessed does not mean they automatically trust you and vice versa. Restoration is trust over time. It will take time to see if repentance is genuine And it can be trusted. We need to be willing to give them some time. And listen, there are situations, we all know of them, that just cannot be restored. Yet, they can be forgiven. Just because something hasn't been restored doesn't mean forgiveness hasn't been offered and hasn't been done. Right? We can think of a myriad of issues in this. But most situations where there's true confession before God and others, it will lead to restoration. And restoration means the relationship becoming what God intends, not just what it used to be. Restoration is getting us to where God, our relationship mirrors our relation, the relationship in the Godhead. Last question, fourth question, and the most important question. What impact does the gospel have on our attitude in reconciliation? So you'll notice as individuals in this whole process, we're on every side of it. We're either confessing sin, <clears throat> confronting sin, forgiving sin, or we're dealing with sin. We're on every side of it. So how does Jesus, and what, what does the gospel say that affects the way we do this? Well, here's what the gospel says first. It says that our sin is real. And our understanding about that allows us to openly and honestly confront, confess sin. 
See, through the years you might have noticed, if you've been here for a while, I'm very transparent about my sin. I, I don't, what you see is what you get. I'm not a hidden guy. I don't do things behind closed doors. I'm very out front with things about my own sin. And the reason for that is I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the worst sinner in the room. I see myself in light of this gospel. And so when somebody comes to say, this is sin, I can say, yes, that is sin. I can openly and honestly confess because Jesus' death shows me and it shows us the reality of our sin. His death is the greatest act of love we will ever see or ever be given. No one can ever give us what God has given us in Christ. So we can honestly and freely confess our sin because we're not looking for the other person's approval, love, and acceptance. We already have it in Christ. So therefore, we can honestly be open about our lives because Jesus sees us and loves us more than anybody else ever will. But on the other side of the coin, we can receive somebody's correction or their criticism as a gift from God because, listen clearly, we know that their judgment of us is not the worst and most critical judgment that's ever been given of us. See, when Jesus came to die on the cross for you, brothers and sisters, it didn't just mean that God loved you more than anybody else in the world. It says that God also criticized you more than anybody else ever will criticize you. Because your sin had to be paid for by the Son of God. Do the math on that. And you realize then, if a critic comes to you, their criticism is not nearly as vast as the criticism that God has already declared when he sent his son to die for your sin. So you are the most loved and the most criticized person at the foot of the cross, and it allows you then to receive the correction from others with eyes wide open about your sin. I've literally had people come and say, Dave, I think you sinned against me in this way, and I say, you know, you're right. This is, this is the sin I did in this situation. But could I tell you the sins that led up to this that got me here? Could I give you more? Because you see this much, I see this much, but God saw this much. Thank you for bringing this small portion of my sin to help me realize I need Jesus more and more and more. And thank you for the courage of doing this. It allows us to honestly and freely confess our sins to others because we understand our standing before the foot of the cross. We know exactly who we are as people. Now as we close, listen, let's keep in mind what we're after. What are we after here? We're after Christ-centered relationships that mirror the Godhead as much as earthly possible. <clears throat> we don't want just good friendships. Right? I'm, not, I'm not after everybody in the church being BFFs. I care less about that. What I do care about is does every person in our church, are they at peace with one another? Are they unified for the sake of the gospel? Do they, do they want to live in unified relationships that glorify God and are going to be a benefit to their world? See, we, we need to mirror Jesus by going to others as he came to us and see ourselves as the most criticized and the most loved people so we can freely and openly give our lives to this process that he's given us of reconciliation. Let's pray together. Now as we pray for a moment, we're going to take a time. I'm just going to lay out a few things for you as we pray.
And the first one is I can I can sense it in the room. <clears throat> Man, you just don't know how hard the situations are I'm dealing with. And I don't. You're right, I don't. But your God does. And your God has given you plan with power. <clears throat> but he's also given you something else. He told you if you need wisdom, he told you to ask for it and he'd give it to you liberally without reproach. So I want to pray for wisdom <laughs> for some of you. You're dealing with hard things. I want to pray for those of you that are afraid. You're just afraid of what it means to your reputation. If you confess sin, you're afraid of your kids disrespecting you if you tell them that you're wrong. Maybe you're afraid that maybe it's going to make the relationship worse. And I want to just pray that God would give us the clarity that our faith toward him to obey him in these things and trust leave the results in the hands of God reveals our love for God and our faith in God. And I want to pray that you would leave the results in the hands of God and in faith that you would go and obey him. Father, we need your help. These things are hard. They're challenging. I pray to give wisdom to our people. Lord, these are your people. You care for them way more than we do. So shepherd them. Shepherd them to the ways that they can reconcile with others. Give them wisdom in this. I pray for courage, faith, to believe that this is God's plan. This isn't something Dave York made up or something that we do. Ten ways to have happy relationships. This is... This is out of God's word. And you will empower your people to do what you've asked them to do. And Father, we, we commit, we say to you, we want to be faithful in this and we want to leave the results in your hands. And Father, help us as a church. Help us to maintain redemptive relationships in a way that honors Christ and says to the world that God sent Jesus. That's a big deal. You've been so kind to us and God, our posture before you is look what the Lord has done. Not to us, O Lord, but to your great name be all the glory. We want Jesus to be elevated and lifted up and glorified in our community. And for that, one of the tools is churches walking and maintaining biblical relationships together. So help us to be faithful in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.